Chapter 10. Canal Street, Ginger Liz and Cockney Jim. I've described the life that hides itself in Charter Street, Deansgate and Gaythorne, and in this, my concluding article, I shall cover the remaining ground that can properly be dealt with, though it is scarcely so prolific as the districts that have already been under notice. Its area is much wider, however, though its special criminality is decidedly of an inferior order, and is so scattered that it loses much of the dangerous character which is developed when its component parts are comprehensively grouped together. It has many features peculiarly its own, and as it consists of three detached localities, these features are pretty distinctly marked in each. The districts are Canal Street, Ancoats and London Road. The first mentioned is the worst of the three, and is of the Wood Street type, than which very few grades of life are lower. It is, perhaps, a terra incognita to nine-tenths of the inhabitants of the city, and yet there is included within its limits enough vice to start any ordinarily-sized civilised town. It lies within a few yards of one of our principal thoroughfares, but is as far removed from it, socially, as the deepest crime from the most exalted honesty. Lying at the back of the woodyard in Oxford Street, which is almost opposite the railway station, Canal Street has really for some distance only one side composed of houses, as the canal runs flush with the roadway from which it is separated by a low brick wall. The level of the canal is considerably lower than that of the street, and two or three locks mark the steep descent of the waters. The single row of houses mentioned are, with one or two exceptions, thoroughly disreputable, and their open doors are, at night-time, thronged with men and women who sit on the steps and chafe any strange passer-by in a manner more pointed than polite. I was initiated into the mysteries of several of these places. An Irish pole was introduced to me in an incoherent state of intoxication. Her residence was a fair specimen of many others, being decently furnished, though without elaboration, and it afforded a striking contrast to that of Dirty Alf, the front room of which was gorgeous with mirrors, mahogany and mixed materials, from the gilded chandelier to the fanciful china ornaments. Curtains of richest colouring were festooned over the window, and a soft yielding carpet invitingly sank under my feet. Luxury itself could not have asked for more, and every attention had been paid to the minutest details. The walls of the passage, or hall, perhaps as the proprietor would prefer it to be called, being fancifully lined with a classic pattern in subdued chocolate colour. The gaslights lit up all with their rich blaze, and a more perfect whited sepulchre I never saw, for vice reigns triumphant here, criminality that can scarcely be touched upon, and yet a more productive centre of crime it would be hard to find, for here finds its way the money stolen from employer or other victim, and viciousness reproduces itself in many shapes. Men may enter the street honest, and may leave it thieves, for money that was not their own they have recklessly squandered, and the harpies have effected a change that too often leads direct to further roguery. I instance this house, as it is only one of many others that are for some reason tolerated as part of our social fabric, and as affording a means of solution to the mystery of how respectable men, young men especially, become thieves, apparently spontaneously, not professional thieves, stealing for the sake of getting a living without working, but secret pilferers from till or safe, obtaining means to gratify their sensual appetites.
On the surface, all is plain sailing for a long time, but at last comes detection, and the master, to his horror, finds his clerk or warehouseman is as despicable a felon as the poor wretch who makes Charter Street his home when not provided for by a beneficent government in a comfortable jail. If the thousand upon thousand patient inquiries by the police as to where the culprit has resorted, and who were his companions, were but published, this Canal Street palace of sin and its facsimiles dotted over the face of our city, thick as plague spots, would show what a terrible agency is at work among us, recruiting year by year the ranks of the dangerous classes from our middle-class population. Passing a glaring vault which is doing a roaring trade, I found myself in Sackville Street, and Mac ushered me into the habitation of one of our most noted characters in certain circles, who has a connection with crooked persons that is exceedingly remunerative. Ginger Liz, as she is euphoniously called on account of her blonde hair, is a woman of middle age, still quick and active in her movements, and with a certain cunning and suspicious look about her face, which baffles description. There was nothing to attract attention in the room we entered, two or three women and a man who looked like a well-to-do mechanic being its sole occupants. There was drink upon the table, and all present were taking toothfuls of whisky out of wine glasses. Ginger herself was seated on the sofa, holding converse with the man, and as nothing of interest seemed likely to transpire, I was quickly back into the street again. I was curious to hear about the Redden's doings, and Mac let on at once. "'Ginger, you see, sir,' he said, "'is a real clever un, and you won't meet her equal all over the city. She's as fly and knowing as the whole boiling of us, and many a bloke down on his luck as she pulled up all square again. She's a perfect godsend, too, when we jugged, locked up, and knows every move of the court as well as Scotty himself.' the slang name of one of our leading detective officers. When a good crossman is taken in and is dragged up at Minchell Street, she sees him as a visitor, ascends one of her women, and no matter what he wants, she'll let him have it. She'll find two or three quid, sovereigns, for a lawyer, or she'll square the prosecutor, or bounce him. If he wants to alibi, she'll manage it first rate, and if there's any stuff, stolen property, to be got rid of while he's in, she's the woman to do the trick. She knows it's all right with them, for they'll pay her double when they're out, and she mostly pulls them off, even if they go to sessions of sizes. She'll get the best patterers, counsel, money can fetch, and she can put things together straight as a line if she's let alone. The D's have been down on her once or twice, but she ain't been stopped yet. It'll be hard lines for many a poor <clears throat> when she's shifted. She's genuine metal, no kid, mistake. Mac sang the praises of this genius of Minchell Street with a fervency that was in keeping with the subject, and no doubt Ginger is an invaluable ally to the thieves who find work for our worthy justices. Richmond Street, narrow and squalid, runs at right angles to Sackville Street and parallel with Canal Street, and the dwellers in it are of the lowest class. The houses are poorly fitted up, and many women live in the same place. The visitors to these dens are colliers from outside and hard-working labourers from within the city who think drink and debauchery the only true pleasures provided for them and behave accordingly. I will only mention one of these, and that is where Cockney Jim reigns supreme when he is in town. In the back kitchen, furnished with the customary sofa, table and chairs, 
far too numerous in proportion to the size of the room, were three women and the inevitable man, in this case an outsider, on the drunk. A quart bottle, nearly full of dark British brandy, graced the middle of the table, and a drunken sodden wretch, clad in tawdry finery, with bleared eyes and scrofulous features, was pouring a glass of neat spirit down her throat. She drank the poison without winking, and helped herself to another, replenishing the glasses of her companions at the same time, for these women can drink with the confidence begotten of long practice, and never dream of spoiling their taste by polluting their mouths with water. Their male friend was subdued and maudlin, but he seemed perfectly content with these philistines, and glared jealously at us as if expecting we were about to deprive him of the comfort derived from the drunken endearments of these representatives of the gentler sex. We left him to his fate, and as I could not see Cockney, I again requested information from Mac. It appears that Cockney attends races and various other meetings all over the country, at which he picks up a satisfactory living, but one of his means of obtaining the needful is by one of the cleverest tricks that has ever been in vogue. It is known as ring-dropping, and it is generally very successful when tried. Many will have been made familiar with it through newspaper reports, but for those who are still blissfully ignorant, I will unfold its mysteries. Provided with cheap gold rings, worth a few shillings, but stamped with a forged mark, and to an inexperienced eye of some value, a sharp and his confederate start out into the public streets. Patiently waiting until a likely victim approaches, the sharp walks past him and suddenly stops and pretends eagerly to pick something up. He has a ring in his hand and, rising quickly, examines it with well-affected pleasure. The victim either stops out of curiosity or else is detained by a direct appeal to congratulate the finder. The confederate comes up and as an innocent passer-by also stops, asks to look at the ring, finds that it's marked, prizes it at £10 or £20, and offers to buy it for that money if the lucky man will accompany him to his house. The said lucky man can't, as he's got to go to his work, and will lose his place if he's late. He's an honest man, he is, and must want to make money out of the ring, so he'll sell it there and then for a couple of pounds. The confederate is annoyed that he has not the amount on him, and expresses vexation that he should lose so good a bargain. The victim, meanwhile, has had his cupidity excited. He examines the ring, sees it's all right, thinks what an ass the fellow must be to sell it for a mere song, and after a little parley pays the two pound and makes off with his treasure. The state of his mind after visiting a jeweller can be readily imagined. Some twenty or thirty streets in the neighbourhood of Ancoats and in the district lying to the left of London Road, very near to the railway station, were visited by us, but it was rather hard to find thieves, though we did come across a few, scattered in courts and stray houses. In Ancoats there is a contingent of foreign adventurers, Italian organ-grinders, etc., who live in one or two large lodging-houses that are well kept and have few undesirable features. The poverty of the residents in these quarters is very great, and as Mac put it, where there's poor people there's thieves. This is true of many streets I inspected, but the proportion of dishonest persons to respectable workers is so small that practically in Ancoats and London Road, crime is being strangled by its intimate association with elements inimical to it. 
Men who work hard all day and earn little feel savage at seeing good-for-nothing rogues with plenty of money hanging about the public houses doing nothing but enjoying themselves, and accordingly they round on their neighbours and put the police in possession of valuable information as often as possible. Ale and porter work, stealing and working, is the mode of life followed by hundreds in these poor streets, and many a wretch finds his way to jail for petty larceny, in spite of the character his unwary employer may be induced to give him. After many nights' wanderings I considered that I had at last come to the end of my tether, and in the slums off London Road I closed my acquaintance with the phases of life I had been studying. The impression derived from my extended visits is that so completely has the police organisation gained a mastery over the classes which live by nefarious transactions, that the city has been cleared of the sharpest and most dangerous thieves, who have sought fresh fields and pastures new, where the hand of the Manchester detective cannot reach them. That this is true is proved by the very few robberies of any importance that of late years have taken place in our midst, and that, when a more usually daring attempt is made on life or property, it is made by strangers and not by genuine residents. There are, indeed, few large cities that can compete with our own in the systematic suppression of viciousness in all its forms, as shown in the sketches of Criminal Manchester. End of Criminal Manchester Experiences of a Special Correspondent Read